This is Coffee and Cardiology. Dr. Kenta Nakamura, pleasure to have you on today. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Jim, what do you, what do you know about Dr. Nakamura? I know that Dr. Moore is one of the smartest people that I have run into and is involved in some incredibly groundbreaking research here at the University of Washington. And I would love for you to lay that out for us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so I came here in 2016 to train as an interventionalist. Um, and so I focused clinically and I think, um, uh, UW was the perfect spot because not only did they have a renowned program in advanced coronary intervention, uh, they've always for decades had a very strong um, research foundation in cardiac biology. And so it was a marry of both sort of my clinical interests in intervention with also my background in some cell biology. And it um, I feel very lucky. I feel like I'm a unicorn because it was a combination of my unique skill sets and this unique opportunity here that made everything work. Um, so I spent a year training in intervention. The following year, I did some more advanced training in intervention, but also started to, to start a research program with uh, Dr. Chuck Murray. So he's done some seminal work in stem cell therapy, specifically using pluripotent stem cells coaxing them to a mature fate of cardiomyocytes and then transplanting them to repair injured, infarcted myocardium heart muscle. Um, and I came in right when he had made seminal discoveries, demonstrated efficacy in primates, and were really looking at this as a viable clinical therapy. And um, it, sort of I was in a place where my clinical interests were shifting to intervention my research background in stem cell biology was somewhat incompatible with that. And so I retooled. I spent a year at MIT learning how to work with large animals because that has sort of clearly become a requisite step in sort of transitioning cardiac therapies to uh, investive cardiac therapies to actual clinical therapies. And so when I came here, I had the opportunity to set up a large animal program. So there was a primate program already. We added on uh, a pig program. And, and through that, we've been able to, I think, make some, some real advances towards realizing cardiac regeneration as a viable clinical therapy. So for me, I felt like I've been bouncing between the clinical and the research in a real synergistic way uh, that I think I would not have been able to find anywhere else in the world. And so real kudos to Rob McClellan for establishing this opportunity, Chuck Murray for mentoring my research. I feel really privileged and lucky to be here. Well, I know that they would say that they feel very privileged to have you here because you do have an incredibly unique skill set of being able to live in both of those worlds. I know you mostly from your exceptionally good clinical care as a cardiac interventionalist when you're doing your training here and, and really appreciate everything you did for my patients. But to be able to marry that with basic translational experience, insights, you sort of are a, a, a such an MVP uh, to be able to come in and, and fill these roles and fit so nicely in here. I, I was hoping that you could go back and, and give us a little bit of the history 
of stem cells and cardiac regeneration because it hasn't exactly been a smooth road. That's right. That's right. And I think one of the things I admire most about Chuck Murray is that he's very honest about sort of the rocky road, essentially, that stem cell therapies has had. Um, much of it for th three, I think two, three decades has been focused on these so-called adult stem cells. Um, so for, for a number of reasons, pluripotent stem cells haven't been at the forefront. Um, these adult stem cells are derived from umbilical cord, bone marrow, various sources. And a lot of these um, uh, studies, I think, had very good intention, but it was very unclear how they worked. Um, but there was, you know, enormous interest and motivation to get these things to work. And so we sort of dove into clinical trials. And now as we emerge from about 20 years of doing these clinical trials, thankfully, it seems like it's safe, um, but they're not efficacious. And I think the root of it is that we really didn't understand how they worked. Um, whereas initially, I think we had hoped that they had a true regenerative or a replacement type of therapy. Uh, that's that's not true. Uh, they may have some pleiotropic immunomodulatory effects to help repair healing, um, but they're not. They haven't been able to demonstrate efficacy. Um, we have tried to, in our group, really distinguish ourselves from that sort of class of therapy, which I think may have a role, but not in the way that we had hoped in terms of really helping our sickest and our most um, embattled patients. So what we are trying to do is stick to the initial intent of actual uh, remuscularization, replacing that infructed, injured myocardium. Um, and uh, we, we uh, to Chuck, Murray's credit has always stuck to the science. So these cells engraft, whereas the adult stem cells didn't engraft. After a couple of weeks, those adult stem cells are, are either um, disposed by our immune system or swept away into our lungs. They're just not around after two weeks. Um, our cells, they engraft, and up to three months, they're durable, um, requires some degree of immunosuppression. Um, as a result, because there are foreign cells in the host, um, but they durably engraft. Um, we transplant a quantity that is sort of intrinsically um, able to contribute to uh, contractility, whereas the adult stem cells will work in the orders of 10, maybe 100 million uh, cell scale. Uh, we work on the scale of, of hundreds of millions to billion cells. So um, we, we, we like to think that we're doing one-to-one -one replacement. A typical anterior infarction causes about a billion cardiomyocytes to infarct, to die. Uh, we put in essentially a billion cells and expect, you know, uh, grams worth of myocardium to be replaced. So I think, I think we try to distinguish ourselves. And this is a therapy that I think we, we have learned from the adult stem cell work. We have to be cautious. We, we, we don't try to overpromise. Um, we own the complications that we see. You know, obviously, not everything's going to be a, a straight shot, right? And certainly our therapy has blemishes. It has things that we have to work through. And I think that we've tried to be as honest and we've tried to take ownership of those challenges. And so one of my first papers was to um, try to understand um, how we can't uh, uh, alleviate one of the major complications with this arrhythmia. So mm. it's not surprising that when we put in these cardiomyocytes that 
haven't quite integrated with the host. That process takes about a month. During that process, these, these foreign cells, before they become part of the host, they elicit arrhythmias. And um, we've now demonstrated that with a combination of, of antiarrhythmics that you and I have both routinely use, amiodarone, one of them, we can control those arrhythmias to the point where uh, after a month, those cells are now part of the host. And then they're, they're no longer arrhythmogenic. So um, I think we've been really forthright in you know, the challenges that our therapy faces. But the, the way I think about it is eventually uh, the challenges that we're facing really go back to the basic premise that we're actually replacing the myocardium, which was never something that happened with adult cell so work. We're categorically different than adults on some cell work. I think there's a lot we can learn from them. A lot of the ways that they delivered the cells, the way they selected patients, obviously was safe for the most part. There were no major complications. And so um, I think we can learn a lot from that, but we are very much looking to go beyond uh, what they're doing, both mechanistically and just in terms of staying true to the uh, to this mission of trying to regenerate the failing or that uh, injured heart. You know, part of the, the critiques that have come from this whole uh, field, and maybe most of it was leveled really in terms of the, um, uh, the adult stem cell work, has been the idea that the clinical application went a lot faster than the basic and translational research understanding. That's right. Uh, it sounds like you're really not going to make that same mistake. We're, we're uh, you know, uh, we're all clinicians, right? We see these patients every day. We want to help them as quickly as possible. But I think um, we're also um, uh, honest that this is a process that has to be done very th thoughtfully um, and carefully. Um, I think a lot of people are looking to us. Um, a lot of gene and th cell therapies are coming online. Um, and we don't want uh, sort of a reckless error, essentially, to, to sideline the real potential that we have. Um, so I think we're, we're proceeding um, cautiously, hopefully not to the point where it is slowing down progress. Cause obviously, you know, these patients uh, need more than what we can provide right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the techniques that you use, uh, both to study this and now to actually deliver this therapy? Yeah. So, um, the, the cells that we're, we're developing, they're, uh, they start as pluripotent stem cells and they, are coaxed to a degree of maturation that they're genuine cardiomyocytes. And those are, that, those are the cells that we actually transplant in. So all along those steps, there are ways to, to study, to phenotype them. And we've got strengths in, in biology and engineering. So all up until the point of putting it in to a beating heart, um, that, that's where the focus of the research has been. A careful analysis of the genetics, of its function, of its contractility. Um, my role is to see sort of how we transition beyond what we can do in a dish or on top of a bench and try to get that into an animal and then eventually patient. Um, so, so some of the work I work in, I mentioned the arrhythmia is a big problem. So we set up basically uh, a uh, animal facility where we're able to monitor arrhythmias in real time from beat to beat. We set up the tools to be able to analyze the burden of arrhythmias. Uh, and now that we have that infrastructure, then we can go in and we can test interventions like antiarrhythmics, drugs that you and I use, 
we're also looking at modifying the cells so that they're not arrhythmogenic from the very beginning. That would be sort of the holy grail is to have a cell that still contracts, can impart efficacy, but doesn't have any of the arrhythmic risk. Um, so that will hopefully be a, a 2.0 of the therapy. Uh, but for right now, I think we've identified at least a promising pathway towards treating the, the, the cells pharmacologically. Um, so that's one example. Another example would be sort of um, these are allergenic cells. So these are cells of the same species, but um, they're not your own cells. So we're going to have to fight rejection. And so what is that rejection look like and how do we avoid it um, we can learn from what we do with orthotopic heart transplant but i think that's an altogether different realm because that's an organ that we're transplanting whereas we're proposing to transplant pericardiomyocytes and we think that that is going to be less immunogenic and hopefully that represents less immunosuppression than we typically use for a whole heart transplant so that's a, another major sort of um, um, facet of our research. And then the other one is simply how to get the cells in. Um, so a lot of, and this is where I think we can learn the most from the adult stem cell work because they tried all sorts of different ways. Catheters to inject the cells from within the ventricle, so endocardial internal uh, delivery through a minimally evasive approach, all the way to an open heart direct injection into the heart when the heart is fully visualized. So um, we're exploring ways on the best ways to deliver these cells. Can you inject them down coronaries? Yeah, so that's been tried. Um, and um, what Eneman and an adult some cell work, it's clear that the retention is poor. Um, and so since we're trying to replace up to a billion cardiomyocytes in the heart, um, we feel that, that, that it's, that's not practical, to be honest. Even if the cells, you were able to deliver that amount uh, uh, through the coronary circulation, it would cause at least some degree of microvascular obstruction, and it may be counterproductive. It may actually cause an infarction because uh, these cardiomyocytes, unlike adult stem cells, uh, they're quite large. Um, that are larger than your in your typical cells, and so um, just the, the the bulk of that going through the coronary circulation, I think, would be prohibitive. Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense, especially if you're trying to target them to a specific branch vessel that's even smaller. That, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're looking at direct myocardial injection. Uh, uh, just. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, we do open sternotomies, thoracotomies exposed to heart direct injections, but ultimately what we'd like to do is a percutaneous approach, which is what, what, what I favor as interventionalists, purely percutaneous approach. Um, and there are several devices actually that have developed for that purpose for the adult sum cell work. So that's a nice way where the adult sum cell work can inform how we proceed with our therapy. So eventually we envision this being a percutaneous, minimally invasive procedure. And would you think it would be from the inside of the ventricle or would it be something that's pericardial access? Yeah, I think, I think endocardial makes the most sense in terms of access. Um, most of the patients that I think would benefit from this would be post-surgery. So epicardial access might be challenging. 
Um, but endocardial, um, that's where the predominance of the ischemia resides. I think it makes sense. Um, and again, um, the adult stem cell work has shown us that that's, a, that's an effective way to deliver cells. And with our cells actually being viable and engraftable, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense to use that approach. Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, so just to, to get back to some of these issues of the immunogenicity and yeah. also the arrhythmogenicity, would this be that role then for gene therapy to modify the cells so in order to reduce those potentials? Yeah, exactly. So that's something that the um, investigators here are really looking at is to, is to modify the cells even before they go into the body to uh, be less immunogenic and less arrhythmogenic. Um, and so those are actually two active projects right now. Uh, and we have some promising preliminary results. Uh, you know, it, um, what we're proposing, uh, putting in these uh, pluripotent cell-derived cardiomyocytes into, into a patient is a novel therapy um, uh, because these cells actually engraft. They'll actually contribute to the host heart. Um, then to say that these cells will be modified genetically, that that is a... Another another level of of um, uh, innovation, but also comes with a lot of sort of regulatory considerations. And I defer to the smart people that handle uh, getting these drugs approved from a regulatory standpoint. But I think that would be um, quite challenging. And so it's something that I think um, we will strive for. But our first attempt at this will probably uh, be. Uh, just uh, pure unmodified cardiomyocytes that hopefully that we can say will be safe when we put them into the host. That certainly makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, as, as you're looking at how these, these cells are actually working, obviously there are some sort of gross assessments like left ventricular ejection fraction, but mm -hmm. are there other techniques that you use to determine, A, if they're there, whether they're they're sticking around or whether they're being attacked by the host and whether they're working. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we've not been able to track these cells. Um, um, and we, we just have to have faith that they're there, they're contributing to the function of the heart. Um, we have a collaboration with Cynthia Dunbar at the NIH. She is interested in looking at uh, autologous cell transplant. So these are cells, uh, your own cells, coaxed back to a state of pluripotency, differentiated into cardiomyocytes, and those cardiomyocytes going back to yourself. Um, and that's really exciting because um, it's actually not known where, uh, whether autologous stem cell transplants um, are going to be free of rejection um, because of the modifications we have to do to get the cells to pluripotency and then back to a mature fate. And... Um, uh, and she's doing that experiment. And part of that experiment, um, she has the cells modified with a benign uh, mutation to track um, iodide uptake, um, similar to what's in the thyroid. It's now in the heart. Don't expect any iodide uptake in the heart, of course. So using PET and an iodide PET reporter, she's able to actually track these cells longitudinally. And her animals are going out months and months much longer than we have. And she's able to track. Um, and it, and it, it, it's, it's promising. It, it seems like the cells um, uh, don't get rejected and that they, um, that they persist. Um, so that's the, uh, that's the only way that I have seen that we've been able to track ourselves. 
Um, uh, other than that, uh, we rely on surrogate measures, like you mentioned, injection fraction. Um, so we have demonstrated gross improvements in injection fraction in our primate studies. Um, other groups have, have tried to look at a more exquisite sort of strain uh, function that you could speak better uh, about than I can. Um, but I think right now we're, we're sticking to ejection fraction, or at least uh, regional fraction, so uh, regional changes in contractility. It would be really good, obviously, to demonstrate that out uh, for quite a while, but we always do need new techniques and better things to be able to detect changes and, and what things are going on and, uh, and whether down the road that would involve cardiac MRI potentially as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and you know, we're, we're limited. We can't talk to our animals, but hopefully in the humans we'll be able to get sort of more subjective endpoints. Uh, um, um, but for now, it's, 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 it's mostly um, uh, ejection fraction for efficacy and otherwise looking at safety, which is arrhythmia. Yeah, well, I, I think it's just phenomenal that you are taking such a methodical stepwise approach going back and understanding what's going on instead of kind of jumping ahead necessarily to some of the things and and like you said and i just so appreciate your perspective on this of learning from what the adult stem cell community has maybe done well maybe not done so well and applying those techniques and, and seeing that as a stepping stone for where you're at right now that's right. Yeah, I think we have to, like I said, make a, a distinction uh, between the adult stem cell work, which I think um, that time has passed. And now hopefully that torch has been passed to us uh, for us to use uh, a, 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 a modality that is actually regenerative. So we're, it's, it's exciting because it has progressed uh, to a phase now where you really are taking the next step. Could you tell us a little bit more about what is going on with that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is not something I anticipated because I always thought of myself as translational scientist. But we had an opportunity to work with a sponsor that was starting one of the first gene therapy trials in the cardiac space. Um, and this is a, a trial that uses a modified adenovirus to deliver two isoforins of vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF, which stimulates uh, endogenous angiogenesis. And so this is a, a growth factor that we all have, that we all relied on during development to grow our cardiovascular system, and we're supercharging it. And to grow new blood vessels in an area that has ischemia presumably would relieve that ischemia. Um, and so um, uh, it, it was sort of, an, I suppose, a natural extension of what I was doing in the lab, but I've had the privilege to be the site PI for that trial. And to learn that process, I think, has been immensely informative. Um, I also was able to join our interstitial review board, our IRB, to get better insight on sort of how, how do we protect our patients from these novel therapies. Uh, and it's been immensely sort of helpful and gratifying, to be honest. Um, so the trial is for uh, patients with refractory angina, so patients who have no options. They've gone through um, our center. Um, you mentioned you've had Bill Lombardi here, right? We have a world-class center in cardiac intervention and, and revascularization. And um, yet there are still patients, despite complete revascularization, despite what Bill can do, 
um, are still left with angina. Um, and those patients really are left at the mercy of, of medications, which are helpful, but are often are, are insufficient to completely restoring function. Um, and so those are the patients that this trial is designed for, um, the so-called NORDA patients, or no-option refractory and disabling angina patients. Um, and uh, we're in the second phase of the trial, which is an exciting phase. They've completed a full phase one dose escalation study. So there's a lot of evidence supporting safety, which is the first thing. So we think this is a safe therapy. The, the second phase is now looking towards efficacy. So now it's really great because you can take these patients that really are struggling to find relief. Um, and you can tell them, look, we have a promising therapy. We don't know if it's going to work. That's what we're studying. It, but we think it's safe. And give them at least this glimmer of hope um, and know that they will get the therapeutic. Um, and so we've screened about half a dozen patients. Uh, two patients have received the, the therapy and are doing well. Um, I, I saw a presumptive third patient this morning before this uh, podcast. Um, it's been really gratifying because it's sort of, it's for me viscerally connected what I've always seen in my clinical practice with what I'm doing in the lab. This, this is that bridge. Um, and for me to be that sort of be involved in that process was unexpected, but it's been really gratifying. So, so Kenta, you know, a lot of people have been working on this, but it strikes me that this is expensive <laughs> and obviously UW has, has done a lot to support it, but have there been other contributors to this? Absolutely. Um, you're right. So, uh, part of what I mentioned about this being such a fertile place for this to happen had to start with, with money. Um, and so UW Medicine contributed a significant amount directly into this effort, the Washington Research Foundation, and then the Garvey family, just a, uh, a, a very generous family philanthropic donation enabled our work. Uh, and it's uh, been over five years, but we're hopefully now seeing the fruits of that generous generosity. That, that's one. It's just so wonderful to see this partnership between these different entities, but especially the generosity of donors who really see and believe in this vision and are making it happen. That's right. I mean, it speaks to really how much an impact um, individuals and individual families can have. So are, if in this trial, are the entrance criteria, the exclusions really onerous? And is there a huge long list or is this something that a lot of people can uh, potentially sign up for? No, I think um, we um, uh, potentially could sign up many more patients. The, um, the trial is designed to demonstrate efficacy. And so the, the most difficult part of the trial has been to find uh, um, uh, somewhat a unique complication of the folks that are, are extremely symptomatic uh, to the point where they're disabled from the angina and yet don't have too many comorbidities. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, the, the patients I really wish I could enroll in the study are our are, are youngest patients. Um, they're, you know, they obviously have, um, angina that restricts their quality of life, restricts their functioning, but they're young and vigorous otherwise. And so they're able to push through the pain because they live with the pain every day and they exceed, say, our treadmill times. 
And um, what the what the, uh, the trial really is trying to demonstrate is for the most symptomatic patients, uh, efficacy signal. And so I, I think those young patients are sort of ca caught in this hard place where they have terrible angina, but they're young and healthy. Otherwise, they're able to push through the pain that they don't qualify for the trial. So I think there's going to be a large segment of patients that don't qualify for this trial, but would absolutely benefit from the trial. Because of course, those young patients would be the best candidates to undergo surgery and receive the therapy. And yet for the purposes of the trial, they don't quite meet the entrance criteria. So that's been the hardest part of the trial, to be honest, is to, is to meet these patients um, that really have no options, but then tell them that they're, they're basically essentially a little too healthy mm -hmm. from, from the trial perspective. And they'll have to hopefully wait a few years before we can get it <laughs> clinically. What, um, what are their sort of multimorbidity exclusions? Um, so things that would confound the efficacy. Um, so uh, severe heart failure and then things related to the surgery. It is a major cardiac surgery. So uh, re renal failure, um, um, habitus, uh, just the general things that would preclude uh, a, a these patients typically have cabbage already or open bypass surgery already. So anybody that would be precluded from a repeat cardiac surgery. But otherwise, there aren't a lot of um, strict exclusions. Um, we've had the most difficulty, again, with, with meeting the efficacy endpoints. So there's quite a bit of work that goes in before they can be enrolled um, to uh, treadmill exercise tests and a PET scan. Um, so I mentioned the difficulty, some of these young folks with angina, they live with the pain, they can push through the pain, they just go, you know, 10 minutes on the treadmill with 10 out of 10 chest pain. Um, that unfortunately doesn't qualify for the trial because we won't be able to demonstrate a benefit um, if they're already going 10 minutes on a bruise. Um, the other difficulty has been simply the, uh, the surgical approach. Um, can be challenging. Some of our patients have ischemia in a part of the heart that won't be accessible mm. from the left breast. And so um, we had one unfortunate patient who has ischemia in the septum, uh, in the middle of the heart. And um, with our current surgical approach, um, wouldn't make sense to enroll that patient. But again, I mentioned hopefully the next sort of iteration of this will involve percutaneous delivery of uh, uh, endocardial delivery, we would absolutely be able to access the septum. So there are a lot of folks that don't meet the criteria of the trial because of the, the, the structure of the trial, but would absolutely benefit. Is there a requirement for amount of ischemia on the PET scan? Um, uh, uh, no, I've, I've heard from other sites where they've uh, been cautious when folks have a a tremendous uh, amount of ischemia with regard to how they'll do operatively. Um, but uh, really, no. I mean, typically when folks tell us that they have angina, we believe them, we put them on a treadmill, we see the limitation. The PET is the last scan. And essentially, we have not been, we have not run into problems with the PET scan at the end. Um, everybody who's made it up to the scan, having done the two treadmill tests, having done our interviews to ask about the angina, uh, the PET scan has, has corroborated all that data preceding that. And the PET scan has not been the problem. So we've always been able to demonstrate ischemia on the PET. 
So you're essentially using the PET scan as a way to round out the picture of that you're getting from clinically and from the exercise test, and then also presumably to see where the ischemia is so that it makes sense to go That's after right. it if you, if you right. can. And we're learning more and more that there is a strong placebo effect, right, to yeah. cardiovascular <laughs> trials. And so these are patients desperate. They want to get better. Um, and um, for the most part, they will feel better after any intervention. We want to make sure that we, there is objective evidence of uh, efficacy. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about the patients right now, and obviously, uh, given that it is a surgical technique, this is somewhat limiting the applicability yeah. um, with the location that you mentioned and the, and the other comorbidity issues. But one wonders also about some of these many young patients who may not actually have obstructive coronary disease, but have things like vasospastic angina or microvascular disease. Theoretically, this at least could benefit. Do you do you see this as? And, and let me tell you, they are really, as you know, they are incredibly difficult uh, right. because a lot of our medicines don't work very well, or they end up passing out all the time. Yeah. Do you, do you see this as a potential therapy for that group? I hope so. I certainly hope so. I mean, you mentioned these are a very challenging group to take care of. You really want to help them. And I, I don't know how to help them as a simple interventionalist. You know, we focus on epicardial disease. But there's a whole segment of patients. You mentioned the microvascular disease patients that we don't address. And I think the first step, uh, one of my partners, Kate Kearney, is pioneering this here um, and, and at least phenotyping them. So um, diagnosing them beyond just the syndrome X that's existed, right? So she does advanced invasive hemodynamics to really drill down what is the mechanism. Is it vasospasm? Is it microvascular disease? Um, is it combination of the two or is it epicardial disease? So uh, in that sort of gross framework, where do the patients fit? Um, I think there is um, some encouraging data to suggest that we might be able to tailor medical therapy according to that diagnosis, but for the most part, it's, it's an academic exercise. But once we've been able to phenotype those patients, then I think then we can tailor therapies, including gene and cardiac th uh, cell therapies, to them. So I think the microvascular disease, the, the folks that truly do have microvascular disease, I think would stand to benefit just as our patients with epicardial coronary disease. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, I think Kate's taking the first step in sort of defining these patients carefully. I think the challenge will, will be that if we don't and we just sort of subject everybody that we can't get better on medical therapy to a trial, that's going to be a heterogeneous population of patients. And, and again, getting back to what I said earlier, so we, I think we have an idea of what the mechanism is and we have a true idea of how we're, how we're addressing that mechanism. I think we're setting up ourselves up for failure again. So um, hopefully with better phenotyping, better characterization of the patients, diagnosing them specifically, I think we'll, we will be able to find an uh, additional indication. For sure. With the VEGF that is being used in this trial, are there concerns for neoplasms? That's a good question. So the, um, the adenovirus is only active for uh, a couple of weeks, and then it's, it's inactive. The expression is persistent for weeks to months. Um, the virus has been modified to be non-replicable 
contemplative, um, and so it won't go in and, and act as a true virus. Uh, it simply is a, a mechanism for us to introduce the gene. Um, the gene itself is non-oncogenic. Um, it has sort of vascular properties, obviously, uh, but it's not known to, to promote, um, say, like an, an angiosarcoma or a, something uh, of that nature. Yeah, I know those were a lot of the concerns. It seems that we're sort of in this fight between uh, using the things that cancer uses to feed itself through vascular growth factors, and yet we want to use that same thing for a, a good purpose of revascularizing the heart, but sometimes especially with systemic administration. But this is not systemic administration. It's not. It's not. It's, it's local to the heart, um, and uh, the promoter, uh, what drives the expression of the gene is cardiac specific. Mm -hmm. um, and so even if it were to become systemic, uh, it wouldn't have the ability or it wouldn't have the right sort of signals to express VEGF outside the heart. Very good. And it puts many concerns to rest. I know that have, have, have uh, been operative in this field for a long time. Well, that, that is really phenomenal and exciting work on multiple different uh, pathways here that, that really sounds like has amazing promise, particularly for the people who are suffering the most, the patients with heart failure who really don't have uh, many other options, or this is a better option than, uh, than some of the mechanical options or going on um, getting a heart transplant and then having the the really intense immunosuppression. Uh, and then those patients with uh, disabling angina and the options that we have to treat them hopefully are going to be expanding soon and, and bringing relief to all these people. Um, it sounds like that's part of what drives you um, along with the, the science that you're uh, involved in. Um, what, what other things basically are your motivations for being in medicine? Where, where do you see your passions lie that make you get up every day and keep doing this amazing work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think I was from the very beginning uh, motivated by not only helping people, but helping people in, in a new way, sort of mm. expanding the knowledge. And I, and I, I like the idea that the work we do will, will have a, a butterfly effect beyond what we do locally here at UW that, you know, whereas I might be able to treat, you know, a few patients every day in the cath lab, uh, the research may have sort of benefit to thousands or millions of patients. So I think, um, that ability to sort of amplify your work um, through novel uh, research, I think, is really exciting. Uh, but I have to say, uh, that is, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, a latent promise. Right? You're, you're, you don't see the tangible benefits, and I and I and I knew from very early in my research career that that. Um, is sometimes is a struggle. Research is hard. Um, it's not always a success in the lab. And so um, being able to see patients on a regular basis has been key to keeping that mm. motivation. So um, I, I, you know, as an interventionist, I take call. I, I go in earlier this week. We went in for a heart attack. We were able to open an infarct vessel, get the patient better. You know, we're we're, we're not hugging anymore, but, you know, <laughs> you, know you get things from the family. Um, and, and that, 
uh, is it just doesn't get old. Um, and so I feel really lucky that I get to balance uh, both uh, uh, those joys, sort of the immediate sort of very um, uh, um, impactful interactions that I have with my patients, but then with also sort of this longer term, much longer term goal of hopefully advancing the field of cardiology so that in 10 years we can tell that patient with, with uh, syndrome X or refractory angina, look, let's get you this trial. Let's make you feel better. What advice would you have for people who are perhaps attracted to these translational and basic science careers, but may be struggling with yeah. this issue? You know, and I struggled uh, as well. Um, uh, the, and it, the issue is that uh, this is not a set pathway. And I think from for for most clinicians, right? So do they make the decision to become a physician? And then while it's hard, it's a lot of studying, a lot of hard work, it's a set track. And you could tell anybody from from that point on in five or 10 years, this is what I'll be doing. I'll be an intern or I'll be a junior attending. And I think the difficulty of being a translational scientist is that there is no, there's no track. You have to sort of make your own way. And for me, that was, that was frightful. Um, especially as a, as a very junior person to, um, to, to, to forge your own path. I was very lucky in that I had mentors that told me not to be afraid, to have faith that, you know, with just hard work, diligence and, and meeting the right people, um, that you will be able to find a space from within to do this work. And that's become true. And so I feel really lucky to have had some wonderful mentors that have provided those opportunities, but also just encouraged me to just have some faith because it's hard to commit yourself to a path that is not after being on a path that's been really sort of defined for you um, to really sort of um, make your own way. So I mentioned Rob McClellan, mentor Chuck Murray. Those are the folks that sort of allowed me to have a place here and then to leverage all the expertise and the resources here has really allowed me to do what I can do. Uh, I think that's a great, great insight that perhaps even extends beyond trainees, this idea that many of us are tracked for a period of time, but then in order really to take that next step, we have to do something that's a little off the wall, a little off the beaten path. And it's not just a matter of self-confidence. It is a matter also of finding those people who can support, direct, provide the resources in order to to actually allow you to fulfill your vision and the, the thing that you were sort of uh, put on that track to do. That's right. Um, a lot of this was timing. You know, I think that the science is at the right time for someone like me to come along. Um, and if I were 10 years earlier, I don't know that this science would have been mature to have a realistic uh, attempt at this. Um, we're lucky that we have an institution that I think for decades has been supportive of, you know, this is the, so we talk about cell therapy as being novel, but cell therapy has been around in terms of bone marrow transplantation for decades. And it was pioneered here in Seattle. And so I think there, it's in the blood here, um, this sort of pioneering innovative spirit. And so to have that backing uh, was essential, obviously. This is, these are not easy studies. These are one person 
uh, endeavors. These are multiple groups, multiple centers, multiple institutions have to be invested in this. And thankfully, UW is one of those centers. So you're saying an environment matters. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's about nurture as well as nature in, in a career development. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, what you know, it doesn't sound like you have a whole lot of time out of either the cath lab or the basic science translational lab. But when you do get you get time, what are you up to? Yeah, uh, we have two young boys, three and six. Um, so we've spent a lot of time uh, just exploring the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'm a I'm a transplant here. I grew up in California, trained in Boston, and came back to the West Coast here. And we we love it here. I mean, whereas I used to think of a ski trip being this four-hour, you know, <laughs> ordeal, right? Uh, it's 40 minutes here, you know. Um, I'm taking my son uh, skiing this afternoon um, after school. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful place. And so um, we try to spend as much of our time outside. So skiing during the winters and camping, uh, paddleboarding in the summers. You know, I will say that there is something about being in an academic environment and having that innovation that's actually part of the DNA, as you said, in the blood, which is, I thought, a great, great double entendre there with the marrow transplant. But, but to actually see that coexisting with high-quality clinical care is not necessarily available every place, or there are, there are walls between them. You, know, you have basically all the science people off in one area and they never really interact with the clinicians but that's not the way we do things here at least in the heart institute we we all sit together in our faculty meetings or at least on zoom nowadays and we have that level of interaction we have a chance to know what's going on on both sides and then we have double threats like you who are able kenta to to see the applications and have that vision for how this science is going to actually affect patient care. I think we're immensely blessed to have people like you here, to be honest. Oh, thank you. No, I think it's seamless. And I think we all very much value our ability to offer these novel therapies as an extension of the great care we all provide. Um, we, we don't see it distinct. It is simply part of how we can do the best for our patients. So that does bring up the question then uh, for some of our listeners who may have patients with refractory or disabling angina, is this something they could refer to be considered for inclusion in the trial? Uh, absolutely. Now, I mentioned we are getting close to the end of the phase two um, and um, fingers crossed that's positive will hopefully be a center for the phase three trial. So absolutely, we have expertise in um, intervention with our um, complex coronary intervention group. We have expertise in our whole range of heart failure all the way up to transplant. So I think um, even if it's not in the clinical trial context, I think that we do have expertise to offer some of these patients treatment. And it sounds like from a referral standpoint, because of our integration, that might be the first step is referring to the complex coronary group and then uh, as appropriate being considered after that for inclusion in trials. Excellent. Perfect. We'll provide all that information below. A anything else? I'm just really, I, I have had a great time listening to you uh, outline all because we get bits and pieces of this, um, but to have you sort of put it all together 
uh, in, in such a coherent picture, both your life trajectory and your professional goals and aspirations and, and how all of this is really um, uniting. But then I am just really excited. I, I have some patients who I feel so badly for them because they are suffering so much with their angina. And I am coming out of this interview much more hopeful for them in the future. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for coming.